listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full-time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so that you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best-selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast. Today, we're going to go in a slightly different direction because, of course, you guys are all guitar players and we don't just want to tap into teaching all the time. We want to explore success in every avenue of guitar playing. And my guest today is a fellow Aussie, someone who took the plunge, moved overseas to the big land, the United States of America, and has been doing very, very well for himself with fingers in a couple of different pies and a huge expertise and knowledge base across a couple of different fields. So let's welcome Michael Flanders to the podcast. Michael, it's great to have you on. Hello. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Very well. So, yes, it's very early here in uh, Melbourne, <laughs> Australia. You're the early bird, my friend. Definitely. And I suppose we had a meeting about a month ago where we were just uh, – catching up randomly and chatting about a few things. And I didn't expect to hear an Aussie accent on the other end of the dial. So, uh, <laughs> no. or, or someone asked me that I'm up early. So, yeah, it was a yeah, very no. interesting experience. Well, yeah, my kids sound like Americans. I don't. <laughs> and uh, I do apologize, guys. Oh, silly old me locked myself out of the studio. And because it's so early, I didn't want to wake everyone up by rummaging through the house and <laughs> leading a search raid for them. So I'm coming to you live from the living room. Hopefully uh, the nah. dog won't have a dream on the couch next to me and <laughs> get some background yeah, yeah, noise. Yeah, yeah. But I've got one lying at my feet as well. So. <laughs> it's universal. Yeah. But guys, yes. apologies in advance for the audio on this one. There might be a little bit extra noise, a few birds singing as they wake up this morning, but hopefully the content will be just as good. So Michael, can you give the listeners a brief overview of what you're doing, your story so far, how you got started in Australia and right up to what you're doing these days? Uh, you want me to go right back to the beginning, or yeah? So obviously, where where the guitar thing started, or well, as far as I know, somewhere in the eighties you started uh, yeah. as a songwriter. But if you want to go right back to your, mm -hmm. you know how you got started with mm -hmm. guitar or music in general, we'd love to to start at the very beginning. Well, it's kind of easy because my father was a guitar player, um, so I got a guitar at the very early age of nine, a little half size K-Pok. Horrible little thing, probably, but it worked. And uh, my dad, uh, my dad had like a probably a pre-war steel guitar. You'd call them a steel guitar back then, where they were just an acoustic that you played with a, you know, with a very simple slide. So that's kind of was my entry to the whole thing. And he was a country guy, so hence, you know, I circled back to country many years later, which is another story, but. Um, so obviously the bug hit me then, it really didn't kind of hit me properly till around the age of 15 and um, mum bought a brand new, back then, a three-in-one record player, you know, the cassette and turntable. So I started, you know, trading records and buying records and, and I kind of realised 
around the age of 15, 16 that I loved the sound of acoustic guitar. A lot of kids my age were diving into, uh, you know, Deep Purple had come out then, you know, with Smoke on the Water, all that stuff. It actually didn't do it to me, do it for me at all. Uh, it was kind of weird. I kind of constantly radiated towards the sound of an acoustic. So I then got hip to Dylan and Neil Young and all those, but I did love Springsteen. I loved it when I heard Born to Run come out, you know. Um, so that kind of was the start of it. My my cousin had moved into our home and he had another enormous record collection. So I got exposed to a lot of very cool stuff at a very young age. He bought uh, Joni Mitchell into the house uh, Richie Havens, Bert Yanch, Stefan Grossman, like fingerstyle acoustic guys. So that's kind of what really grabbed me. And by the time I was that age, I had traded my surfboard for a uh, really good acoustic guitar. And I don't have it anymore, uh, that one. That was kind of the, the real start for me. And fast forward... I probably started playing acoustic duo stuff at around the age of 18. And in Australia, probably 18 might have been 1980 for me. So there was a lot of gigs. You know, back then they were paying more money than they are now. <laughs> you know, it was kind of ridiculous. But uh, so, I, I, you know, like most kids, I got into the um, into the live thing. But I got... Uh, my second instrument was banjo, and that was probably the first real changer for me uh, that ch literally changed my existence because I got a phone call. I was working a job at Telecom around that period, and um, one of the ladies that I was working with, her husband had built, he was an electrical engineer, and he built a studio, and he called me for a banjo session. And I actually asked him, you know, because I knew better banjo players than me, and uh, and I said, you know, why me? And he said, well, your timing's really good. I prefer the tone of the banjo in someone in time than a better player that's out of time. <laughs> so banjo players, because it's so fast, they normally push the meter, you know. So that was my introduction into the studio, and um, it probably around that period I had got very um, hip to Ry Cooter. I don't know if you know who that is, uh, but Ry Cooter's, you know, probably one of the greatest slide guitar players, you know, ever to walk the earth. Uh, and luckily enough, I got to hang with him at one point. But he he turned my head around completely, the tone and and the tunings. And so I that was really the, my biggest entry into the studio world because I won't say I mastered it at that age, but again, uh, my tuning was pretty good. And I ended up getting to play, by the time I was in my early 20s, I got to play on Ford ads and uh, Coke ads and lots of cool stuff. And I got uh, several producers in, in Queensland. I was one of their go-to guitar players. So I, you know, keep in mind at a young age, being in that environment, I went to and did some study at the conservatorium up there and I started to really understand my theoretical side uh, and that obviously helped because I got thrown into some very deep waters at different points. Um, I ended up working on a session for a producer by the name of Alan Beard, which he's still around in Queensland. I actually did a gig with him when I was back there 
And he was married to um, Kim Durant, which you may or may not remember her. She was kind of a semi-mid-level artist, but fairly well-known in that area. And I was on a session with Tommy Tico as a conductor, and they rolled out the, you know, the, the dancing ants, and it was like eight pages long. And I was certainly lucky that I had learnt enough to navigate something so scary. And my heart was, you know, like, what the hell, you know, and trying to read that massive chart. It's not like coming to Nashville and, I don't know, I don't have one handy, but looking at a one-page number chart, you know, which, you know, taking that theoretical knowledge and then coming here and then getting thrown a number chart was another story all within itself. But so that was kind of, you know, a big thing for me. And I got so into that studio world that I built my own studio in my early 20s. I bought a home in, uh, in uh, the south side of town and built a 20 by 20 concrete block in the backyard. It's still there today, believe it or not. Um, and bought a bunch of gear, bought a bunch of air conditioners, and away I went. So, and I'm really never that. I, I kind of learned from the school of hard knocks when it came to recording. I, I've never really taken any real audio lessons. I just, you know, bought Pro Tools and bought this and had a 24 track machine in a Neve at one point. Uh, first, first console was a Fostex console, horrible thing. And a couple of an eight track, a 38, I think it was, eight track machine and a two track machine. And one compressor, one effects unit, and I was away, you know. So that's where I started. And if you walk in that room over here now, you'll have a shock because there's gear coming off the rafters. So that's awesome. So this is all while you're still uh, in Queensland, Australia, right? Yeah, I didn't leave. I didn't leave Australia till 2007. I started. I came here in '92 to get a taste of it. It was a very new, different Nashville in '92. Uh, then I came about four or five times a year from 2000 right up to the time I moved. I used to do a lot of work over here. Um, I, you know, worked closely with the major record companies in Australia, and I'd bring over projects and cut them in Austin or Nashville. And it was a guy that approached me about coming over here back in 2006. And it was kind of, believe it or not, when I when he first brought this up, I I actually didn't take to the idea at first because I had such an incredible good existence in Queensland. I mean, I was the go-to guy. I was making heaps of money. I was doing whatever I wanted. And navigating new turbulent waters really wasn't my idea of a good time at that point. But it certainly has proved uh, a way better existence than being there. Yeah, very, very exciting. And I definitely want to dive into the next exciting chapter of the story. But you mentioned becoming the go-to guy in the area. So how did you become the go-to guy in the Queensland music scene or and the session work that you were doing? Well, the session work was one thing. I think I've always wanted to, you know, I just love recording, you know. Um, I, the the go-to guy was kind of simple. I had, I was a warner, I, around that period, when I started cutting country records, probably 99 or 2000, before that I was just cutting whatever, um, rock, pop, it didn't matter what it was. But the more and more I did it, the more and more I realised that the way I kind of played was more country, folky, Americana kind of stylistically. Being a slide guitar player, you know, you, that whole kind of fabric works with that. So 
I think that my wife was a pop artist in the late 90s and um, we had a deal through BMG and that was very pop. And um, I kind of felt that it really wasn't my thing and it became not her thing. And I kind of changed that chapter by then saying, I'm just going to go and do my thing, you know. And she's a great writer, my wife. And she kind of felt that she was being pushed in a direction that really didn't suit her as well. She was more like a Melissa Etheridge thing, uh, and they were kind of putting her out more like a pure pop artist. And uh, unfortunately and unfortunately, the dance mix on one of her singles went number one, which really, there's no coming back from a number one and saying, I don't want to do something, you know. So there's a lot of very unusual kind of uh, tensions, I suppose, around that very late 90s for us. We had already had one son, which is now 28 years old, so he was like two or something, and we wanted to have more kids, and being a pop artist, it's not really a done thing. You know, if you're in a country artist, you can do whatever. They accept it. It's much more acceptable in the country music world. But anyway, that wasn't the reason, of course, but I just felt that I should be doing projects that I felt more comfortable doing. So first big record I worked on was a guy called Michael Bryars, and we did a record called Somewhere In Between because it was somewhere in between rock and country. And coming from where I came from, I kept heating up the amplifiers, and that's not what they were doing in country. So I was kind of making aggressive kind of tones and and I think that's part of the reason it became popular. People were like, I kind of like what that guy's doing. And um, because of my father's background and my early existence in country, I knew everybody. So I could tap into the engineer buddy that I was working with. He's like, where do you know these people from? I said, my past life, you know. And, um, and that's kind of what happened. And I think when you make quality projects, it, it saved the Queenslanders or the people that were, you know, even in the West or they could come to me opposed to going to Sydney. It was a lot cheaper for them and I think it was less intimidating for them. So I made 54 released records in five years before I moved to America. It was a lot of work. That is a, a big number considering, you know, yeah. most people wouldn't touch that in a lifetime. So to do that yeah. in a, in a five-year yeah. period. Yeah. We were popular. We were we, we were going good. So uh, and back then, I, I owned a Neve console and a twenty-four track machine, and I chained three day ADAP machines to it in sync, and it was crazy. But um, I learned a lot, had a lot of fun, and um, and during those periods, I was a Warner Chapel songwriter, and then became an ABC Music Publishing songwriter by the time I'd moved here, and then I had bought myself out of that deal to work here and do whatever I wish to. Wonderful. That's yeah, really curious because I think a lot of people are oblivious to how the music industry actually works in terms of the yeah. publishing and the songwriting yeah, credits and know, contracts. No. And- no. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I consult for two major publishers every, 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 every month here and you'd be surprised what people don't know. Um, it's kind of sad considering we have this extremely unregulated business, but and and I think you can kind of hit on some good points for what you're doing because, you know, we we grow up in a fantasy world. We grow up watching TV thinking, well, I can be Steve Vai or I can be Eric Johnson or, you know, as I said earlier, I was at Dan Dugmore's house earlier today. Now, it's an iconic American musicians. 
So I think we have fantasies about who they are, how much money they make, how they live, and that's the big problem is we we grab an instrument and we think that is the vehicle for success or for financial freedom, but it's not. <laughs> it's, it's far from it. And it's being able to understand how the mechanics work can then make it things more available. I mean, I got this young girl in Australia, her name's Lily Grace. Now, she's doing awfully well. She just opened for Vance Joy last night in in Brisbane. Thousands of people, 9,000 sold out show. Now, that kid is is just really tenacious, you know. She'll ask a thousand questions and she'll figure it out. She knows more than half the high-level music guys I know know because she's driven for success. You know, she was over here. We booked like 40 songwrites for her, you know, and she's a good little guitar player already. She's figuring that out. She played the Bluebird while she was here. She had a great, played a couple of big festivals with the Davison Brothers. So, you know, it's it's one of those things, you know. It's just a matter of, you know, where do you want to be? You know, how do you figure and where do you think you fit in, you know? And you can look at the social media aspects of life now and and use them as a partial vehicle, but it all comes back to your own personal ability. I mean, uh, as you are doing, I, I, I was teaching a bunch of kids when I was very young, and um, the hardest thing is, you know, where it's like when I was in Australia, I was also lecturing at that JMC Academy, where do those kids go? Where do they end up? You know, how did I end up here? You know, and it's it's more than I think quality control has to meet opportunity, but opportunity only happens if you've got a personality that can go, hi, I'm Mike, or they hear a product and go, I want to work with that guy because the products are successful. You know, Lily Grace is, you know, in the millions of streams, you know, how do you get a million streams? You know, my son, Ben, uh, I, I know you mentioned that in a question, uh, is signed to Candy Rat Records. With as, If you look at um, Andy McKee, you know, that amazing acoustic guy. So that label was formed for acoustic soloists. But my son was the second electric soloist that was signed to that label. And how that is working very different than a normal record company works. You know, they sell notation and all kinds of stuff, which, you know, I helped Ben with his contracts when uh, he was getting signed to that label. So the world is very shifting, as we know. It's not like, you know, what I learned, you know, a high-level music executive said to me only a couple of years ago, let's now only, let's forget what we learned the last 30 years. It's now we've got to move forward. We have to now understand how it's working going forward now because it's very different. That's it. And, yeah, you touched on so many important points and something I say to my students and not that I work with people generally as high up the uh, the the talent roster as you would uh, on a daily basis, but I always say you need to be good as a bare minimum. It's everything you do beyond that that separates the good from the great and the people that get the opportunities from those that miss out every single time. And 
you know, the haves and the have nots. It, it's not enough just to be good anymore. You've got to be exceptional at your instrument. You've got to be organized. You've got to be tenacious, as you mentioned before, in pursuing opportunities. And you have to keep on putting yourself out there because if you don't, someone else will. The person who is more organized, more oh, yeah, driven, yeah. more motivated will eat up your spot every single time. Well, there's, there's, there's two elements of surprise. Um, my youngest son wanted to be a recording bass player. And being in this town, um, you know, wonderful opportunity for bass players. First thing I showed him was not how to play the bass, was I opened Pro Tools and showed him how a real session bass player, what their velocity level looked like. <laughs> what did he Write you know that what one I'm down, saying? guys. That's a <laughs> yeah. Well, what that showed him was I had a very famous band bass player play a session for me one day, and I won't mention who he is because you would know who he is, and it was a very famous band. His velocity levels were terrible. I couldn't use the track. I wanted to try him out because of who he was, and I showed that to Caleb. Then I showed him what a Nashville session bass player velocities look like. So this guy was, you know, peaks and troughs. This guy was solid. It's like when you when a snare drum gets hit by a great Nashville drummer or a great drummer full stop, that spike looks like that. But every one of them look like that. And that's how it's got to be. You don't have hard, soft, hard, soft when you're the, that's the snare. So you see things you see here I never saw at home. Even though I made a lot of music, you know, there's very few people at this level. And it's not that Aussies can't be at this level. It's just they don't have the day-to-day -day opportunity to do it. Here, you know, sessions every every hour, every day, seven days a week. So it depends on how busy you wish to be um, and how good you are to get those calls. But, um, you know, I have a... a uh, a favourite drummer that I've worked on several thousand songs with. Uh, he's my age, incredible multi-platinum drummer. And when you start working with someone like that, it's very hard to go back to something else. And not having a shot at any, I did 63 steel guitar sessions while I was in Australia for that year. And I cannot tell you one drummer that I was excited about that I played with. And that's sad. It's the truth, though. And from an educator's perspective, I, I know we had a discussion um, in our first phone call about the timing and, and how a lot of these drummers to their standard might seem like they play in time, but from your standard where you're working with the next level, next colour of musicians up, it's completely over the joint. Um, and we just hinted at the fact that a little bit of it's environmental, but how do Australian musicians, this is an international podcast, by the way, so people are listening all around the world, but maybe Australian musicians or people who are in more isolated areas where there isn't that population density or the big city how do they go about building better timing and rising to the standard of these world-class players? Well, I had the same problem in 2007 when I came here. I wanted to uh, dive straight into it and uh, I surrounded myself with, you know, the greatest steel guitar players because I always felt like I was already there as a guitar player, but I wanted to to get right at the edge of my seat as a steel guitar player. And I'd been playing for quite a lot of years, but compared to some of these guys, it's just 
I wasn't at that level at that time. And uh, and every answer came back the same. Every answer was seat time. That's it. It's seat time. And, you know, there was a drummer that I worked with a lot in Australia back in the day. His name's Marty Smith. He had really good timing, pretty good timing. And um, But he locked himself in a shed and just played to a click and songs for couple of years. I mean, you know, it, it is, it's all about getting, getting into the, into the gym, isn't it? If you want to be fit, get into the gym. And, and it's the same with practice. I mean, nearly every night, Michael, I come down here, pull my steel up against my console, put things on that are really difficult to play to and play to. Um, I write charts out for some stuff to sort of get my chart always reading and being on the ball. And, that's the thing. I mean, you know, um, I mean, I can pull out a couple of Nashville charts and show you. And, and uh, you know, 2007, I got here, I thought they were playing football in the studio going, you know, 44-11, you know. I'm like, what the hell is a 44-11, you know. I, I reverted that straight away to learning the harmonized scale at jazz school. And it kind of is, but it isn't. But it gave me a rudimentary understanding of what it was. So, you know, if you're in the key of C and you've got a two, it's a D minor. D. D. Yeah, D minor if we're playing a harmonized scale. But in national number system, the two is the two. There's no minor. But that's what I thought. Yeah. Well, can you give us a brief overview of the system? Because I've obviously heard on it, heard of it, and I'm sure a lot of people have it. Well, let me grab stuff. a chart and I'll show you one second. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Got one on my desk. So this is uh, for the listeners at home. Michael's just going off. He's sitting in his amazing studio with his amazing collection of guitars, <laughs> and he's uh, obviously going to give us a demonstration of this Nashville number system. Well, there's a uh, well, you can see that. But... So we've got the song Me and You, 136 BPM, I'm guessing key of F, and we've got – a yep. couple of numbers up on the page. Yeah, so basically the uh, the intro is one, three minor, four, six minor, one, three minor, four, a one over three, four split bar, one over three, four split bars. So just got to – so the number system is just an octave. So it's literally if you're in the key of C, C to C, C, D, E, F, G, Blah, blah, blah. So if you indicate a minor, you put a little minus sign after it. And the one over three, you know, if you were thinking like you were playing in G, for instance, you know, you know straight, if you go to a, a kind of like an E minor, but, but you, you know, you still got, you grabbed still the, the, you know, first and second string, that would be more like a one over three. So it's just indicating things just like you would write in normal chords, like C with a whatever B bass, you know, whatever you slash with the, with the other the other note. So they're just doing it in numbers, opposed to how we would do it in in musical no, notation. So I find now, for me, I can't work without something like this. It's so simple, and it's all on one page, and it makes my life very easy. There's yeah, no room yeah. error. There's another reason why these Nashville guys are so fast is because they're all reading this chart. Say, you know, say you've gone into the session, you've got a six or seven piece band, 
and you've started this song in F, but you want to, but you're finding it's too low. You want to go up to G, the same chart. You just reorient yourself from the new key. You just change the F to a G up here and you're away. Exactly the same chart, right? That's the beauty of it. You know, if I'm working with somebody and, oh, okay, we need to remove that capo for the girl singer, I've already written a chart. The chart doesn't change. And it's even better if you're a guitar player like me. When I'm tracking acoustics, I don't know, you know, whether you've had a lot of experience in this, but I do two or three parts. So I'm reading the same chart. So say, for instance, you know, I was playing this song and I want to use the key of F and I don't want to use a capo, well, I'll play that. But then I want to capo it, I can then think, okay, now I'm mentally thinking I'm in D, right? I'm just playing an F position, you know, like I would. So I then capo up and I'm playing in the fifth position, right? So you can't – back in Australia in those days, I'd have to write a new chart just to do a capo position recording. But this is – I do it fast, bang. You know, I can just say, okay, give me another track, bang, straight down, move my capo, away I go. Yeah, and as long as you know your fretboard and your intervals and your understanding of the, the music theory yeah. behind it, it's essentially just a mental capo for every song. Yeah, well, then then your brain gets even more fried if you then pull out a mandolin, you know, and, okay, I'm yeah. going to play a mandolin part. And then you just keep looking at the ch- same chart. Sometimes you do go a little balmy, you know. <laughs> so. But just as you said, like getting in amongst it, doing it every day for a month, like your brain just adjusts, just like, you know, getting in the ring or getting in the gym, you, you just got to immerse yourself in it and, and rise exactly. to the standard. You know, I think we all, the only thing that ever stops great prog- progress is ourselves, is our own ability. So it, I, I had a rude awakening a few years ago. My youngest son, the bass player one, said to me, Dad, why don't you practice anymore? And I was like, well, I play every day. He said, but that's not practicing. And the penny dropped and I went, he's right. I'm playing over myself, you know. So that's what started probably five years ago, my practice routines. Yeah, it's an important thing. I think um had a similar story when I was studying uh, music. We had to pick a second study instrument and so I took uh, I wanted to play saxophone, so I thought that'd be cool. It's the closest thing to an electric guitar. I like saxophone. So silly old me went and enrolled in the brass class, not realizing it was a woodwind instrument. <laughs> so I got ah. <laughs> so I got assigned a, a trumpet, but the uh the ah. flip side of that is got to take lessons from one of the lead trumpet players in the uh you know Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, a guy named Bill. And um, yeah, he used to tell us like, you know, he, he's that good that he doesn't really practice. His gig is his uh his practice, but then he goes, hang on, every year when auditions come around, I've got to try and beat the, you know, the next up and coming 18 to 20, 25 year old who who does play and practice nine hours a day. So in the month leading up to the re-audition things, he has to get his thing and he goes, I should probably just get around to uh, <laughs> you know, regularly practicing. But you know, we can all come become very complacent. And I think unfortunately for teachers, often, you know, we've got a guitar in our hand all day, or maybe you experience the same thing as a session player or a songwriter. You've got your guitar in your hand the whole day for work and then you clock off work and, you know, just still have that same mental kind of energy to pick up, pick it up and have fun or to have practice. So that's the hardest thing. And I think, you know, obviously practice days are usually days where you haven't had it in your hand. You know, 
I might, um, like yesterday, I did a, a steel session, but then I still practiced that night because it wasn't overly draining. But if you're drained, it's, you know, I think the other side of the practice routine is if you're overtired and you start playing and realize you're fumbling a little, get off because muscle memory will remember mistakes. You can fall back into bad routines when you start learning something when you're not really agile. That's some really, really good advice there. And muscle memory and the ability to develop that is well, one thing I'm re- Steel guitar, you, you've got four limbs moving at once. You've got right hand technique, bar technique, tuning technique, volume pedal with your right leg, and your left leg foot is on pedals. Both your knees are engaging knee levers. So I have five knees and four pedals, three pedals on one guitar, four on another. So, you know, they're all, you know, lifting and lower, you know, lowering and raising strings. You certainly, that's muscle memory as well, right? It's like a drummer. So I find that's not like me sitting there strumming away on an acoustic while I'm watching TV, which I could, just to keep, which I do to keep my calluses, you know. I just have a little one of their mini maidens that they gave me. I just sit at the, leave that in the living room, you know. It sounds more like you, you're describing how to fly a helicopter than play an instrument when you describe your, your knees and your hands and all those things. Very, <laughs> sounds Crazy. very complex. Well, it really is. They say it's the most complex instrument in the world. So uh, I've been reading, uh, there's a book written by a really great steel player here in town, wrote a book on Buddy Emmons, which is, they say, the, the most amazing steel guitar player that's ever lived. And uh, the stories in the book are fascinating. So the guy was obviously very paranoid about work and he would go to the basement of his house, turn all the lights out and play in the dark in case he lost his sight. Then he was like, well, what if I lose some fingers? So he started training himself using other ways of playing the guitar. That's how paranoid he must have been. But fascinating book, absolutely fascinating. What was the name of that book? That sounds like a terrific read. It's it's just called, uh, I think it's called The Icon, Buddy Emmons. Yeah. So, Buddy, you might have seen uh, Emmons guitars, Emmons steel guitars with the little Emmons V on them. He designed those. He did work for the Emmons company. It's his name. But he was the most celebrated steel guitar player. There's There's several of them, but he's probably the most celebrated then there's lloyd green then there's paul franklin and the guy i was with today dan dugmore they're probably in the top four or five in the world you know very fascinating well yeah, i'm sure that this is write yeah. that one down check out the uh the book yeah, buddy emmons yeah you'll love it if i was upstairs i could show you the book but written by steve fizzle fischel fischel sorry steve fischel yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll post the, the link to that one with the description of the podcast for those of you who are listening or watching along at home and not yeah. on the computer to Google. Um, but, Michael, I want to go back to something you said before is, you know, we often uh, become the obstacles of our own success or something along the lines of that. Um, for those people who might be in Australia or a country town or, you know, want to become a career musician and they're thinking and dreaming of moving to America or, you know, a big city where the music scenes are a lot more happening than wherever they are, but they're nervous, their family's telling them not to do it. What advice do you have to those people about, you know, 
taking on their goals and, and creating their own life. I think that, you know, you and I both know that YouTube is an amazing uh, um, asset to learning. It's also an amazing asset to find out what's going on in different cities. I would say, let's say you're somewhere remote in Australia, and I'd say don't get hung up on how good you think you are. (laughs) (laughs) There's There's a guy that lives here. I don't know if you've come across him. His name's Jed Hughes, Australian. The name does sound familiar. Incredible guitar player. I would say world-class guitar player. Jed, I, I, I comes from somewhere rural Victoria, I think, maybe, or maybe it was rural New South Wales, I don't know. But he he left Australia. He became, uh, he studied very hard, but then he went to a university in Texas and uh, John McBride had discovered how good he was, got him into Nashville. He got a record deal. After so many weeks being here, he was lucky that they had put him on an audition for Patty Loveless, and he went out, had very little money, like $150 or something. It's a good – you can see him do an interview on True Tone on YouTube. You can check him out. But um, he talks about it, and um, he bought every record. He had very little money, but he went and bought every record she had done, and he didn't only just learn the key parts – he learned even the interwoven parts that were happening on the acoustic. And so he knew it. So by the time we went to this rehearsal, they said, oh, what about this song? He says, doesn't matter what song you throw at me, I know every one of them. Now, that's extraordinary. You know, my lazy ass would have probably written out charts like this for every song and went and read it, you know. But I'm a really good reader. Uh, I go to gigs and I I, I don't rehearse them very often. I just write a chart. But I'm in the studio all the time being creative, and when I look at a number, I know what I think I'm going to play. You know what I mean? I, you, after you've played hundreds of interwoven ways of doing something, you navigate things a certain direction, right? So, But Jed had the tenacity, I suppose the word is, to to be very prepared. And by him being very prepared, He's gone on to have a very successful career here as a session musician, as a solo artist. You, you can you can type in his name. You can uh, he's got a reasonably new album out over the last year and a half or so. Um, I think it's called West. Uh, he's got a few little kids now, but he's an incredible guitar player. And I think he's kind of somebody that you got to say, "Wow, okay, that guy deserves everything he got." You know. And I'm not saying he's overly successful. He's probably not. But I look at guys like that and think, okay, they did the work. So I think that's that's just a an example of my advice is I came here on a different level. I came here because someone, you know, I had a, a business um, understanding that I ran an international music company and I that was a great job, you know, six-figure job. You know, great allowances, great, you know, great everything. Uh, it was way better than I even realized at the time when I look back at it. But so I was kind of lucky that I didn't have to worry about money or anything. I had a wonderful job and I was able to sign checks. So it was easy for me to create relationships because I was the one, dri- I was the driver. So obviously had a good enough education in the publishing world to be able to obtain that job. And it, I wore two hats because the producer in me 
cut the demos for the publishing company and the education side drove the business. So it was a, a double-edged sword that really worked well for me. Uh, when I clocked off, I, can, I could clock off. and uh, But I could hire anyone in town I wanted to hire. So I got the, to meet the greatest musicians in the world, the greatest drummers, the greatest guitar players. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know if you guitar player guys that are watching this are familiar with Tom Bukovac. Are you familiar? No, I'm not. <laughs> he's probably the greatest guitar player in the world today. If he's not, he's in the top five. He's a triple-scale Nashville musician. They cut a record in town with that, uh, what's her name, the lady from Heart. Um, and they, him and a couple other Nashville guns have been out there playing with her. Um, but Tom, um, big hands. So he does this thing on YouTube called Homeschooling. You need to get on there and watch that. Um, Jed Hughes is on there with him on one of the homeschooling. And he, he'll walk you into the, some of the great studios in town. You know, there's one with him recently with Dan Dugmore that I was with today. And um, have you heard of Brian Sutton before? I have heard of Brian Sutton. Brian's probably the greatest acoustic player living at this point. So Brian and Tom together on this homeschool and stuff talking about guitars. And and there's a really great one because Tom starts asking Brian about these particular old acoustics he's bringing in, and he does this vibrato thing. He shows Tom how he can hold on to chords by pushing behind the bridge on his acoustic. Never seen it before. So it's pretty interesting to watch, but uh, you'll see Tom after sessions drinking his beer at home, pulling out a 53 Tally Esquire or something and showing you different things he's been working on, and it's fascinating. Yeah, homeschooling, he calls it. So, uh, yeah, in town everyone calls him Bookie, but it's Tom Bukovac. So. And he was married to Sarah Buxton who wrote, you know, Stupid Boy and a lot of hits for Keith Urban and blah, blah, blah. And that was Tom. If you ever watched Crossroads with Keith Urban and um, John Mayer, you know, they did those cross, Crossroads concerts. Well, Bukovac's on stage with Keith on that one. So pretty cool. That's awesome. And just to... um. No, I'm just taken aback by how casually you mention all these names and how everyone's interwoven. And that's probably they a lesson are. that once once you're in, you're in. And obviously there's things you, you need to do to maintain your reputation. And um, one of my teachers at university said, um, you know, you're only as good as your last gig. You obviously, if you <laughs> start going downhill, you can go downhill pretty quickly. But that's true. And when you uh, when you mention uh, and and do highlight that Buddy Emmons book. It's actually a good read to realise what not to say in the studio because he lost some accounts by being rude. And here, you know, Australians in general are a little bit more aggressive than Americans. Um, we could be a little more, you know, aggro. And here it's in the studio scene now everyone's very polite. They watch their P's and Q's and everyone interacts really beautifully. So you never get any push-pull stuff, very very rarely anyway. And on that topic, what are maybe, you know, two or three other mistakes that you see guitar players or session musicians making that they obviously want to avoid making <laughs> to opening, maximize their career? You know, the less you open your mouth, the more you've got to secure a job. You know, um, you producers don't like really to hear your opinion unless it's a really great opinion and you verse it a 
to the producer, you know, very, uh, very cleverly how you would want to bring that across. There's a there's a, a session musician in town that's incredible. He's Russian. His name's Ilya Taskinsky. Probably, you know, in the again in the top probably ten or twenty players in town. And he's very he's very vocal, so he's got to watch watch his p's and q's. You know, he's Russian, so he's keen to let his ideas come out. But you know, I hate to say it, but his ideas are probably better than most people's ideas. You know, but some people don't like that. They like the producers there to verse his opinion. Doesn't really want to push pull with one of the musicians, you know. So, but uh, Ilya's extremely talented guy. He was in a band that came out from Russia called Bering Strait, and a lot of those people in that band are now in very substantial positions here. Awesome. And on the flip side of that, what are two or three things uh, the listeners can do to? rapidly accelerate. And I know there's no shortcuts, but every now and then, you know, your, your hard work, your perseverance, it helps you strike on the right path or even simply being on the right path helps you get to the destination quicker. So what are some tips and tricks or ways that uh, people well, can guarantee their success or get there a bit well, faster? My, my first um, tip would be if you're a guitar player, figure out how that instrument works in multiple tunings. The tonal characteristics are so nice in an open tuning. I'd be experimenting with that. Secondly, I would be going, if you're a stringed instrument guy, go and buy a mandolin, go and buy a ganjo, go and buy a banjo, go and buy a bazooki, go and buy, as you know, you've heard the saying, you know, guitar players are like assholes, everyone's got one, you know, and that's more relevant here. The funny saying is there's always room for a great guitar player because there's plenty of good ones, right? And that's the truth is, you know, if I had to survive as an electric guitar player in this town, I might as well put a bullet in my head. But I can survive as a music business guy, as an acoustic guitar player, and as a steel slide guitar player. So I realised when I got here I needed to rein it in and only focus on my strengths, and I had to throw the weaknesses away. Now, I'm a good electric guitar player, and I play on records all the time, but I would not classify myself as a good electric guitar player compared to these guys. I play electric guitar on tracks, of course, because I'm making making music. But if I want something really flash, I'll call a Jed Hughes or I'll call uh, James Mitchell or... You know, I had Doug Moore in here the other week playing electric and steel, you know, because I wanted a different flavor. I mean, I can call 50 guitar players that are better than me, you know, straight away. So that's my advice is how good do you think you are? You know, I've been friends with Eric Johnson since the 80s. And look where Eric is today even, right? Still sounds like Eric, right? Uh, has he improved? Probably, but, you know, still. So... There's not a lot of Eric Johnsons that you meet in your life, is there? But he was a practice fanatic. But he was good. I mean, people don't know that Eric was Carol King's guitar player for a while. He was Cat Stevens' guitar player for a while. He played with Chris Cross for a while. You know, before he became Tones and Eric Johnson in the 80s, no one knew who he was till he, bang, ended up on the front of Guitar Player magazine. And so I met him back in the 80s, and we're still friends today. 
Um, I can text him right now and go, hey, Eric, how you doing, buddy? You know, that is a wonderful example to follow someone like Eric that just focused completely on the way he wanted to sound. He has a very individual, unique voice. You know, so many people, like even Bonamossa, Joe sounds like a lot of different blues guys. He can even sound like Eric, you know. But Eric has a voice, like Clapton has his own voice. Satriani has his own voice. Vi has his own voice. You know, Bumblefoot has his own voice, you know. So you've got these interesting guitar players that kind of sound a certain way. So you're either working really hard towards your own voice or you want to be very versatile and being able to cop a lot of things to make a living. And I think that's they're two different personality traits. People that don't want the limelight but love the studio and just want to be a great instrumentalist and play on other people's things or for other people. And then there's artists. That's amazing. That's just my view. <laughs> yeah. No, and but so much of it is grounded in reality. And there's that famous quote, you know, you can be a jack of all trades or a master of none. Master of none. Um, yeah. But you can yeah, also I think- I think I'm the second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's a good, humble approach to have is to, yeah, never think you've got to be proud of what you've achieved and um, be confident in your abilities and all those kind of things, but realize that there's always room for improvement. And that, as you said, you can uh, go really deep and become the absolute best at what you do, which is strategy one, or you can diversify, as you've mentioned as well, and and go across a couple of things. And for guitar teachers, it's the same thing. Do you want to be the go-to country guy as the number one guitar country guitar teacher in your area and get all the students that want to learn that or the number one metal guy or the number one jazz guy? Or do you want to cater a bit more broadly to beginners and get a bigger share of the market and not necessarily have to go as deep into certain things? So again, multiple strategies, but you have to find your voice. You might uh, absolutely hate teaching beginner guitar students or people that don't want to practice and be driven towards you know the jazz stuff that you're passionate about or the the mental stuff you're passionate about. So, yeah, is there a, a right way or a wrong way? Not really. Well, and you never know always. what's going to creep up on you in your professional life. I mean, I had a artist from Mississippi come up a couple of weeks ago, and um, she sounds like a cross between Nora Jones and Lana Del Rey, and that's kind of not really my wheelhouse anymore. But we wrote this really great little jazz track together, and she sounds like Nora when she sings. She's got this real cool thing, and, uh, you know, here I am playing, you know, minor nines and, you know, that I haven't played in years, you know. It's beautiful, beautiful track we we worked on together. So, yeah, it's funny. I hadn't played those kind of shapes probably in 30 years. And yeah. came back to you quick enough? Oh, you never you never forget chord shapes, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was straight. She kind of started this thing and I went, oh, like I knew where to drive it and, away we went within minutes we were there you know but if you hadn't had that education i would have sat there like a dummy wouldn't i i would certainly wouldn't have looked like the great producer she had hired so uh you know oh i don't know what that chord is ma'am you know that would have looked great wouldn't it that's the thing is where does our education start and stop it doesn't i um i said to the famous lloyd green one day i said lloyd do you know how many albums you've played on? And he said, oh, Mike, it's documented, you know. I said, wow. really? He said, well over 25,000. <laughs> and he said, you will never master this instrument. And he's one of the masters. 
you know. So he's saying he will never master it before he passes away. It's too many, you know, possibilities in the instrument to think you can master something. And when you think you can master it, you can then add another lever or another pedal, right, and ch- keep changing it up on yourself if you want. But I, I play with the Lloyd Green setup, so I kind of understand where he's coming from. But he has less levers than I do because he he bends the bar and does all kinds of stuff to get those voicings where I can hit a pedal or a lever, you know. And he does that on purpose because he's got so used to that guitar, you know. That's kind of you don't meet too many masters in your life, and when you do, you got to kind of ask the right questions. You know? Yeah, yeah. That, that quote, you know, you will never master this instrument, and that's something which you know, a lot of us want to work towards mastering our instrument. But the truth is, the journey just never ends. <laughs> it doesn't because you know you can move one finger, and all of a sudden it changes the voicing, and you go, "Oh, geez, I, it was one fret away. I never knew it was so cool." You know, so. You know, the other night I, I had this, I have this, I told you, this little mini mate and it sits up in the living room, right? And I I dropped tuning on it and I was playing this piece. Now, when I write with someone again, I've got the start of a beautiful progression just by sitting around with that guitar and changing the voicing of this tuning, you know? So I think that is something that's really interesting. A lot of people write in dadgad here, you know? But I often, a lot of my, uh, I've written a lot in open D and that's my Raikuda influence, you know. He plays a lot in open D. It's beautiful voicing. Amazing stuff. Well, Michael, unfortunately we're going to have to wrap it up here, but I appreciate you coming on the Top Music Guitar Podcast. Before we do wrap it up, where can our listeners connect with you, find more about what you're doing and get in touch? Probably my Instagram is the easiest, just Michael Flanders Productions, you know. That's usually where I post things that are I'm that I'm working on, you know. You know, unfortunately these days you'll see a few photos of my new dog, you know, but um but mostly music. <laughs> Do you get more likes on your photos of the dogs or your musical things? Um, I don't know. Um I notice you get more likes on videos, but I post a few things on Facebook, but not a lot. Um uh, I got a couple of different Facebooks. One I don't look at very often, which is I think my producer page, I don't touch much, but my normal page, I post stupid stuff on it. So I'm not, I'm not, I, I've got more complacent about business as I've got older, you know. Really, really good stuff. Well, Michael, again, I appreciate your time for coming on. And I'm no sure worries, on behalf of all the listeners, we've shared in a wonderful story, got a, a terrific insight to all the wonderful things that you do. And we'll, of course, post the links to your website, your social media, wherever you Yeah, I got a website. You, you know that. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a website there, the themichaelflanders.com. So you heard it, guys. Hit up Michael, uh, connect with him online, follow his stuff. It's an amazing story. And, of course, so many great quotes and inspirations and thoughts that he's shared. So, Michael, we'll look forward to having you back hopefully sometime in the future. Until next no worries, time. Buddy. And the guys Enjoy listening at home, day. thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you on the next exciting episode of Top Music. Thanks. Have a good one. See you, Mike. Cheers. If you enjoy this show and want to hear more of our work, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. For links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a free ebook on how to find more guitar students, visit us at www.topmusic.co slash guitar or check out the show notes. And lastly, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.